Good evening, my dear brothers and sisters and young people. We're very much looking forward to sharing our study weekend together with our brother Dave and sister Liz Hill and kids. And we're thankful to have our brother David Hill who has prepared his studies this weekend around the title of Moses, My Servant. Our first study session this evening will be to the theme of Moses, Brother, where we will see a man moved with compassion towards his people, a man of deep empathy and affection, an emotional man prepared to lay down his life for his brethren. Brothers and sisters, as a basis of our brother David's consideration, our brother Phil Bell will read for us Exodus chapter 2. Reading together from Exodus chapter 2. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off, to wit, what would be done to him? And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her handmaidens walked along by the river's side, and when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said her sister, his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and, said, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. And it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he espied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. 
And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. We now look forward to hearing our words of our brother David under the consideration of Moses' brother. Well, thanks, Mike, and good evening, brethren and sisters and young people. It's a real pleasure for Lizzie and I and our children, Ollie and Eddie and Lucy, to be with you for this weekend. We're really looking forward to it and I hope we can enjoy our time together considering Moses. Now, just by way of introduction, obviously there's a lot in the Bible on Moses, isn't there? What we're going to do as our studies together is to look at his character. So we're really going to look at the man Moses. So we won't be going into some of the intricacies of the laws and offerings and all of those things, as good as that might be, we're going to focus on the man and his character. So without further ado, let's get straight into it, because in this chapter we read, we're introduced to Moses and, importantly, his parents. So Exodus chapter 2, verse 7. Um, Well, actually, let's start um, back a little bit before we get into that. Chapter 1, verse 7. We read there that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. And then we skip down to verse 9 where Pharaoh was quite uh, intimidated by this. He said to the people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. And so this fear... Um, in Pharaoh of some uprising of these children of Israel really intensified. He became quite concerned about this to the end result that in verse 22 he issued an edict, every son that is born ye shall cast into the river. So you can imagine the backdrop into which Moses was born. This is a nationally government-sanctioned genocide of a race. That is the backdrop into which Moses was born. And it's against that backdrop we want to consider the courage and the faith of his remarkable parents. Have a look in verse 2. When Jochebed saw that Moses was a goodly child, she hid him three months until when we skip into verse 3, she could no longer hide him. And we can speculate that perhaps the sound of his crying or the like meant it just got too hard um, to keep this little boy safe. There would have been these marauding mercenaries going around, perhaps vigilantes to find these children of these children of Israel, these Hebrews. Incredible bravery. But they saw that this child was special, very special. It's an interesting word that's used to describe uh, Moses, a proper child. 
when we skip across to uh, Hebrews 11, and you maybe just listen to this, we're familiar with the words, Hebrews 11, 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because again they saw that he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, in both instances, the word proper really just means beautiful or good-looking. So maybe you could conclude they just saw he was a very handsome little boy and thought, um, this is special, we really want to save him. Well, it's a bit more than that, isn't it? Um, Stephen tells us, he gives us the secret in Acts 7, he says that Moses was exceeding fair. And the word exceeding isn't really translated very helpfully because the word exceeding is actually theos or we know that means God in many occasions. Okay, So in Acts 7, exceeding fair really could simply be said as God blessed or blessed by God. And we know later that it specifically says that the Spirit of God rested on Moses. So clearly there was something quite distinctive that made the parents of Moses believe this was a very, very special child and gave them great courage in the face of incredible adversity to defy the rule of the most powerful man in the world. Incredible faith. What makes it more incredible, brethren and sisters, is that Stephen quite clearly tells us that many, in fact the Greek tends to suggest the majority of the fellow brethren and sisters, we might put it, of Amran and and Jochebed actually gave up their children. Such was the intensity of the pressure, they succumbed to that to the point of sacrificing their own children. Just let me read to you um, Acts 7 verse 19. Stephen says there that Pharaoh dealt subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children. Many could not withstand the intensity of the threats against their very life. Perhaps now we fully appreciate the remarkable faith and the remarkable courage of Amram and Jochebed. So what did uh, Jochebed do? She, uh, at this point, when it became too hard to continue to hide Moses, she makes this little ark of bulrushes. She lays her child gently inside and places him down near the bulrushes. And we know the story that the daughter of Pharaoh uh, finds Moses and, and pulls her up out of the river. In verse 10 it says, The child grew... And Jochebed brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, this is quite interesting. Many um, speculate as to how did Moses have such an extraordinary conscience so that later, when he was 40, um, he went out to his brethren. And maybe being this special child... It could be, brethren and sisters, that a lot of it was in his very formative years. Because if you look back into the history of of Jewish tradition, the age of weaning a child back then was around five. 
which might sort of come as a bit of a surprise to us these days, but according to tradition and many writers, that was around the age. In fact, some quite a bit longer than that. Let's, for our purposes, say five. And the wording changes. After that period, Jochebed gives her son, not her little boy or her child, back to Pharaoh's daughter. It's now her son. And so I like to believe that in those formative years, those early five years, Amram and Jochebed, with this special gifted child, instilled in him a remarkable awareness of who he was, a Hebrew, a a child of Israel, one who never, ever forgot who he was, ever. A remarkable thing. And I think for us as parents, it's worth asking ourselves, you know, this, the scientists would tell us that those early years in our lives are the most intense learning years. I was reading of one child researcher who, who said this, um, this is when a child becomes the person they are going to be. And so for us as parents, I think it's worth asking ourselves, isn't it? How are we going with the development of our children? How much time are we really investing in our children while we have them? For Amram and Jochebed, they knew it was a short period and they gave it their all, as we might see. But also look at the incredible tug of war with this young boy. Again, let me just read to you what Stephen says. In Acts chapter 7, verse 21, it says that Pharaoh's daughter nourished Moses as her own son. In the very preceding verse, it says that Amram and Jochebed nourished up Moses in their house. So you had Amram and Jochebed nourishing him in the early years and then to her credit, Pharaoh's daughter doing exactly the same. This incredible tug of war, the ideology of the Egyptian palace, royalty, and the life of a child of Israel, nourished up in his parents' house. Which would prevail? Would he become an Egyptian or would he remain a child of Israel? That's the big question. And we know that Moses never, ever forgot who he was. Let me read to you in that context some words which we may wonder. It's worth just pondering, was this how Moses was brought up? Was this perhaps the household in which he grew up? Let me just read to you Deuteronomy 6 verse 6. It says there, thou shalt teach these words diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them When thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates, lest thou forget the Lord." And Moses never, ever forgot 
So perhaps when he was reflecting later and writing those words in Deuteronomy 6 verse 6, he was reflecting on his own upbringing. Amram and Jochebed using every single moment with this special little child to instill in him a remarkable culture, a remarkable awareness and conscience of who he was. Quite extraordinary. Do we savour those moments, parents, with our children whilst they are in our house? It's a question that's worth all of us asking. All right, let's consider then Moses' education in the Egyptian court, the royal palace. And again, we get some very interesting insights just in relation to how intense that would have been. Let me read to you what Stephen again says. It's, it's, it's wonderful we have that speech of Stephen, by the way, because it fills in so many gaps, doesn't it, in relation to the Old Testament. We learned that it was angels, which we may not have known. It gives us all this detail. And it's the same with Moses. Stephen says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That's verse 22. And was mighty in words and in deeds. Now this word uh, learned is an unusual type of word, but it's the word pedagogy. Or you might, if you're into academia or a teacher, um, it really is a word often used in academic circles for, for learning or to be educated, to be taught. However, when you dig into it a little more, it's not just about academia. The root of the word means to chastise. And it's not, so it's not just the mind, it's actually the mind, or we might say the mind, the body and the soul, or the spirit. So Moses was honed in the education of the Egyptian court, but also physically. It actually refers to being tutored at the feet of the masters. So yes, he was incredibly well educated in the ways of the Egyptians, but also in, in, in terms of bringing up a young man who became elite. You know, you can imagine um, both his physical activity and his education in the courts of the Egyptians. What about this word um, that's also in Stephen's record, mighty in words? And we probably would expect that's the word logos. Okay? We could perhaps just extend that logic. In the context, it refers to Moses being schooled in the dogma, the philosophies, the ideologies, the laws of the Egyptians. We can imagine him perhaps participating in, in debating in the Egyptian courts with the other princes and perhaps the princesses. Schooled in the philosophies, the dogma, the, the history of the Egyptians. So an elite athlete, one of the intelligentsia of the Egyptians. But then it adds the deeds and he also, by that we can interpret, became a young man of some means. Okay? Because the word deeds is the word that we get today, ergonomics. 
It actually means to work. But in the Greek context of, of how Stephen uses it in Acts 7, it really has the idea of business or enterprise. He became a powerful young businessman, a man of some means as a young prince in Egypt. Okay, so learned, mighty in words and logic and philosophies and thinking, and then a young man of some means, a powerful young businessman in this mighty empire of Egypt. How remarkable. But he never, ever forgot, despite all of that, who he was. He never, ever forgot mum and dad. Maybe they were allowed to visit. Not so sure about that. Some say maybe he had recourse to the records of Joseph. We can only speculate. I like to think it was that remarkable upbringing that's referred to in Deuteronomy 6 verse 6. In his most impressionable years, it was forged in him that he was a young child of Israel. And I think it's worth just a comment for us. There's many young people in this audience and it's a great thing. We live in an age today of unprecedented wealth. You're probably aware if you take any interest in business or economics, Australia has achieved a world record in the history of recording economics right back into the 15th century. 22 years this country has experienced without a recession. Amazing wealth. And young people can experience success at an early age that is completely foreign to prior generations. Moses had all of that, but he didn't seek it. He didn't go out of his way to seek it, and it never changed his heart. And so young people, and all of us, do we seek to be noteworthy, to be an Egyptian? Or are we content in our hearts to be a Hebrew, never forgetting who we really are? All right, let's have a look um, next. And maybe you can stay in Exodus or you can go to Acts 7. We're going to jump back and forward. But Stephen tells us in Acts 7 that when... Moses was full 40 years old. Not sure exactly why he says full 40 years old, but it suggests perhaps because his life can be divided into three lots of 40. So maybe it was right on 40, and there's some significance to that according to some. But the point is, Stephen said at that point, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. It came into his heart to visit his brethren. And as Mick said when he talked about the heart of Moses, this is where we get an introduction to the extraordinary heart of this man, this beautiful heart, this feeling person, a man just like the Lord Jesus who was moved with compassion, moved with compassion. That's Moses, a beautiful heart. This word here that, um, in Acts 7 verse 23 that it came into his heart literally means to well up, to rise up or to ascend. He had this overwhelming urge that welled up inside him to go and visit his brethren. 
to see them. And that probably gives us a glimpse into how sort of isolated in this elite society this prince was kept. Okay? Because we know his brethren were shepherds. And if we know a little bit about Egyptian society, and actually Joseph tells them, say you're a shepherd because in Egyptian society that's an abomination. The word means to be repulsed. So perhaps they were really isolated out there in Goshen and he hadn't seen them because it says that he went out, Exodus 2 verse 11, if you're still there, and looked on their burdens. He looked on their burdens. He saw their burdens and he was moved with compassion. And I think there's just... A lesson for us, brethren and sisters, in this. Mike, in his prayer, talked about the fact that in your ecclesia, as in mine, there are people who are suffering, bearing great burdens. Do we do what Moses did enough? He went out of his way to look and he saw their burdens And he was moved with compassion and he did something. Now we don't condone what he ultimately did, but it's the heart of the man. But look at the steps. He went out, he looked out and he saw their burden and he was touched. And you know, there is a lot of mental illness and depression and anxiety in our community and that's very real and it's very, very sad. But sometimes if you're a little bit like me, you, you can sometimes just feel a tad sorry for yourself. And really, one of the best ways that we all know to feel a little bit better or get our life into perspective is to get out and look out and see the burdens of others. Because it puts life in perspective, doesn't it? Inevitably, we find that there are people suffering so much more than us. And it turns our mindset, perhaps, from self-pity to actually caring and feeling for others. And then it's been said many times as well, hasn't it, that some of the, one of the best ways to sort of alleviate our own sense of burden and being burdened down is to get out and help lift the burdens of others because it's a joyful thing to do it's a relief it gives us a sense of lightness of spirit of seeing the impact that we can have in helping others and the joy that gives us so i think that little expression there in verse 11 of moses he went out he looked on their burdens and he was moved with compassion to do something And look at the empathy again of Moses. It says there in verse 11 at the end, he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. This is a man who looked like an Egyptian. We know that later, right? Because at the well, the daughters of of, um, his father-in-law said, well, We saw an Egyptian, but they were his brethren. 
and he felt it. Fellowship, that sense of kinship was real to Moses. That was his brethren who were suffering. We know that Paul says when one member suffers, we suffer with it. That's the heart of Moses. He felt it. It was very real. And we've already said that that's a lot like Jesus. You think about Jesus with Saul on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Well, he wasn't, was he? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. But he was in that he was doing it against the brethren of Jesus. And that's the same mindset of Moses. He sees his brethren struggling. He sees an Egyptian smiting his brother and he feels it. And he's compelled to act. Now, I don't know about you, brethren and sisters, in your ecclesia, but there's a verse in the Bible that always makes me feel very small. And you always look at yourself and you say, hmm, that's sobering. And it's the words of James. Let me read them. James 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We have a habit, don't we, brethren and sisters? Uh, we see someone, how you going? We have this weird habit in Australia. Someone says, how you going? You say, how you going straight back? Um, but we know sometimes when our brethren and sisters are suffering. They might not be smitten by an Egyptian, but they're suffering. And I reckon sometimes we do exactly what James said. Have a great day. Have a great week. Be warmed and filled. God bless and do absolutely nothing. I think our welfare committees would say they don't get bombarded relentlessly by people prepared to give. But you would have them in your meeting. We've got a lovely brother or sister in our meeting that are just amazing. There would never be a single brother or sister in our meeting who's ever sick, ever in hospital, and they don't get a visit they don't get flowers, they don't get a card. They are wonderful brethren and sisters in our ecclesia, aren't they? People who live it. And Moses was like that. That's what you love about Moses. It's not great that he went and killed someone, but he saw someone smiting his brother and he felt it and he was compelled to act. His was a faith that worked. It wasn't dead, it wasn't academic, it lived. And I think it's a very powerful lesson for all of us. Why did Moses do this, though? Just on a slightly more academic point, why did Moses do this? Well, again, Stephen says something that might surprise us. Was he just sort of wandering around? I'll have a look at my brethren. Oh, wow, that's not good. I'll do something. Or was he on a bit more of a mission? 
He was definitely on a mission because um, Stephen tells us the following. Acts 7 verse 25, he says that Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. Now the word deliver there is very similar to Exodus. It means to, to save or the, the word deliver, Exodus. He actually thought that by what he was doing, the Greek uh, literally means put two and two together, that his brethren would get it and go, this is our deliverer. And it didn't happen. He was quite crestfallen because it obviously didn't work out at that occasion how he, liked, how he hoped. Maybe God had communicated to him, a bit like with Samuel, that one day you will be the deliverer. Maybe Amram and Jochebed had talked about that. But this was not to be the time. He needed to become a shepherd before he could do this. Have a look, though, at... Um, well, actually, just to wrap that up, um, Stephen concludes that little piece by saying, but they understood not. They didn't get it. They didn't put two and two together. Exodus 2 verse 13, um, another incident. When he went out the second day, uh, behold, two men of the Hebrews this time um, strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And it's here that we're introduced to another characteristic of Moses that we'll see time and time again. So the first one we've seen, an amazing heart, moved with compassion, touched by things, inspired to act. Here we'll see Moses, as we saw in the earlier incident, the defender of his people, the one who will stand up and defend the oppressed. And we see it here. He takes, um, he takes this this situation on, seeking to right the wrongs. Stephen tells us again, what's his motivation? Acts 7 verse 26, he would have set them at one again. He would have set them at one again. Saying, sirs, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? You know that word set them at one again it's pretty much the word for the atonement it means to reconcile to bring together he would have atoned he would have brought them together reconciled these two brethren and I love that about Moses he was clearly a bright intelligent educated man doctrinally no doubt schooled as we've already looked at in the principles. But for Moses, it wasn't just doctrine. The atonement was something he lived. Okay, it wasn't a doctrine to be accepted. It was a doctrine to be lived. He wanted to set brethren at one again. What a beautiful principle, a peacemaker. And aren't they awesome in our ecclesias when we have brethren and sisters who have it in their, in their being to bring people together, 
to fight for unity and harmony in our ecclesias. Moses was that kind of person. But what happens sometimes when you do that, right? And we see this sadly, and it's a bit of a lesson, isn't it, sometimes? We see this in broader society. Two people are fighting. Someone tries to get in and break that up, and then they get embroiled in it. And all of a sudden, they, people start attacking the person that's trying to reconcile. And that's exactly what happens here. Moses gets caught in the crossfire. The one that's doing the wrong, verse 14 says, who made you a prince, as it should read? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Oh, you're an Egyptian prince. Who made you a prince over us? And that challenge, brethren, sisters and young people, is going to stick with Moses for his lifetime. Who do you think you are? Why do you put yourself up above all of us? Remember Korah, Dathan, Abiram, Miriam and Aaron? It was constant. He's trying to do the right thing here. Who are you? Who do you think you are? It's a fairly tiresome, hackneyed thing. But brethren and sisters, it's a little sad, isn't it, that I think any of our ecclesia welders here tonight would testify it's a fairly common refrain if you have been an arranging brother and ever tried to deal with some of the difficult matters, even in our own community, we get the line, who do you think you are? Are you so righteous? What gives you the right to tell me? And that was the refrain that Moses was met with right here. But also look at the interesting point, verse 14. Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? So the word had got around pretty quickly about this prince and this murderer, hadn't it? Because you read back with Moses, um, he, he was pretty sort of nervous about doing what he did. It says that he looked around um, quite furtively in the record before he slew um, that Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. But it comes out to haunt him, doesn't it? Okay, and I think, again, there's a lesson for us in that, isn't it? When we do something that's wrong, we try and sometimes bury it. But it's a bit like the grains of sand. A little bit of wind comes up, the sand blows away, and those secrets come out, don't they? The skeletons come out. They don't tend to stay buried for that long. They didn't stay buried very long here at all. And you see that, don't we, in society at the moment, this uh, Me Too movement. You couldn't, if you listened to the radio, read the paper, you'd have to have been aware of this Me Too movement. If, yep, Des is nodding, so someone's aware of it. It's right across the world, this Me Too movement. And all these people in society, captains of industry and business and entertainment and politics, all those secrets they thought were buried under the sand are coming out to bite them in some pretty big ways. And right here, right now in this country, there's a lot of business people I know that are sweating, sweating bullets, we might say. 
And long may they sweat because some of the behaviour is terrible and it's a good thing even in our society today that some of them are being brought to account. So it's just a little lesson, isn't it, from this incident of Moses. His intent was good but killing someone wasn't. You try and bury it under the sand, doesn't stay buried for that long and it comes back to, uh, to, to haunt us. All right, we read then in verse 15, I think it is. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses, this prince, um, part of the royal family, becomes number one on the most wanted list. And they really wanted to kill him because much later... Um, we read in chapter 4, verse 19, the Lord said unto Moses, Go return into Egypt, for all the men, all the men, are dead which sought your life. So they were out to get him, seriously out to get him. Um, And he had to flee here to this well in Midian. Now, just as an aside, and if you really want to dig into this, it's a fascinating study that will take you hours. I'm not sure it yields any great point of exhortation, but it is very interesting. What is this thing that Pharaoh heard? This, he's really upset by this thing, so he wants to slay um, Moses. Well, on the surface, you would think uh, it was him killing um, the Egyptian. Well, I hardly think so. You know, that could easily be justified and uh, rationalised away as the righteous act of an Egyptian prince on someone going too far with an Egyptian, uh, a, a Hebrew slave, all good. We'll see later that the thing was the treachery and the treason of leaving Pharaoh's house, walking out of the Egyptian court to go to his brethren. Remember, he was on a mission. That was the issue. And we'll see that later. Perhaps, for those who have studied the pharaohs at the time and pharaoh's daughter and who she was, perhaps at this point of full 40, and we'll see in Hebrews 11, he actually walked away from his own coronation in the Egyptian society, the next pharaoh. Many commentators believe that, and there's quite a good rationale for it if you've ever looked into it. I'll leave you with that. Can't be sure. It's just something fun to think about. Verse 16. The prince of Midian, we read, had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them all away. So again, we we see, don't we, very quickly, this heart of Moses. He can't handle seeing this. He's sitting in a well. He's forlorn. He's fearing for his life. A stranger in a strange land. He could have just sat there. Who are these people? A foreigner anyway. I just got into a world of pain for intervening just a little while ago. I'm just going to sit here. Not with Moses. It wells up again inside him. He's the defender of the oppressed. And it says that he stood up. He stood up and he stood up 
for these seven daughters. What a chivalrous man. Verse 17, it says, he stood up and helped them. And I just, I really want us to try and get to know this man, Moses. As I said, you think about that. All that he's been through, he sat there by the well. He could have easily felt sorry for him. He doesn't even know these people. It's a bunch of shepherds. I could get in another dispute. We know that he had a tendency to take matters into his hands and try and control outcomes by his own actions. He could have justified it. But no, he stands up and he stands up for these seven daughters. But he's learned, hasn't he? Because there's actually no evidence at all in the record on this occasion that it got physical. And that's a lesson for the young people. If you're ever bullied, um, use your presence, use your words, not your fists. It's a good technique. Great example of that is ever watch a cat. We've just, in, we've just inherited a little rescued kitten. I think we've had it for two weeks, trashing the place already. But it's a bit of fun to watch this little kitten with our dog, right? This cat is about yay big. The dog's this big. But just the way the cat looks at the dog, and if the dog gets too close, it you know, just gives it the look. It's got a presence about it, and cats are good like that. So remember, young people, never a good idea to, to use our fists or get in a, a fight like that. Here there's no suggestion Moses did that, and it ended so much better than last time. Just a little lesson. All right, where are we? Actually, there's a good point as well in this um, little incident where it says when um, the daughters got home to, the, to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you are come so soon today? And they said, as I mentioned before, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. So there's that point I was making before he looked, for all intents and purposes, like an Egyptian, just like Joseph. But he wasn't, was he? He wasn't at all. He was a Hebrew. In his heart, he was always a Hebrew. And look at that in verse 22. When he names his first um, son, when he gets married to Zipporah, um, he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And again, I think that's a question we should ask ourselves. Could we truly say, brethren and sisters and young people, could we truly say that we're a stranger in a strange land? Moses could, despite all of that upbringing in the royal house, in the intelligentsia, the elite of society, incredible businessman, athlete, intellectual, Stranger in a strange land. Stranger in Egypt, stranger now in Midian. That was always in his heart. He knew where he stood. And I think that's a real um, issue for us, brethren and sisters, in our society, isn't it? There's so much pressure to assimilate, to integrate, to stand for nothing and fall for everything. How would have Moses conducted himself? And could we say genuinely with him that we feel the same, a stranger in a strange land? Let's conclude um, 
in Hebrews 11 because there's a little summary there of this early part of, um, of Moses' life. Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 26. So it says there, By faith Moses, when he was come to years... There's the the hint about that time period, quite specific, full 40 years, come two years. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Now there's so much in this little section, so we'll just break a few little uh, gems out of this. You see, the word years there in verse 24 is literally the word mega or megas um, in the plural. It actually means to be great. Okay, so it actually would be better rendered when Pharaoh became great. And this again gives this hint that perhaps this was, as many speculate, at the point of his own coronation. Regardless of that, it was at the peak of his powers, the peak of his greatness as this prince of Egypt. At that very point, right? Now, we read this language and it just rolls off, you know. He forsook the riches and the treasures in Egypt for affliction with the people of God. We don't really have that scenario, do we? You know, this is the future king of the world, potentially. Or definitely, we can say, the young prince of the empire of the world. Extraordinarily powerful individual of great means. It was all there all waiting for him. And he turned his back on it completely. And Mike referenced this in his opening remarks and his prayer because I think it's really important. And young people, this is a big lesson as well. Note that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he didn't just leave it there. Life is not just about saying no. It's not just about the negative it's about positive choices. He said, no, he refused that, but he chose to be with the people of God. He refused to be an Egyptian. He chose to be a Hebrew. He refused riches, and incredibly, he chose affliction. Why? Because he had recompense to the reward. Recompense literally means to be paid. He knew, right, that the wages of sin is death. You sin, 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 and your paycheck is death. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, he knew that if I choose to be with the people of God, if I seek for glory, honour and immortality, the reward is eternal life. He saw all that. He refused that. He chose that. He clothed that future with so much reality that all those riches and wealth, not interested. Amazing. That is an extraordinary thing to do. 
when it's so real and it's right there, right there for the taking. And then there's another thing that we perhaps don't like to talk about. It's a little unpleasant, but the Bible uses the word here for a reason. It says there, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It doesn't say to enjoy sin for a season. It says the pleasures of sin for a season. And the point there is that God and the writer to the Hebrews, we assume the Apostle Paul, is making the point that much about sin to our nature is pleasurable. It is. What a remarkable man to turn his back on the riches and the pleasures of sin because he knew that that would just last for a season. And young people and brethren and sisters, we will never have the courage and the uh, tenacity, the willpower to say no to those pleasures unless the reward and the recompense of the kingdom burns real in our hearts. We just won't. We're too weak. Our faith has to make it possible to say no because the future is really real, really real. Moses could have had anything he wanted and he said no. We need to have that discipline to say no that comes from faith. I'm just going to conclude with the word respect. Actually, the word respect, where it says that he had respect unto the recompense of the reward, is actually a big word in the Greek. It's two words, and probably best literally translated, to turn one's eye away from one thing and fix one's gaze on another thing. That's what this word respect has. Turn one's gaze away from that and fix our eyes on that. And that's what Moses did. Potentially he turned his eyes away from the crown to be the emperor, the king, the pharaoh of the world and fixed his eyes on the promised land, which we know actually he would never see, he would see but never enter in his life. But he chose life. He chose eternal life. And it's so simple to say, on the one hand, pleasures of sin, but for a season, here, eternal life. In Deuteronomy, Moses said to the people, didn't he? He said, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, choices. And he said, choose life. So pray God, brethren and sisters and young people, that we will all have the faith and the courage to choose life. Thanks, Mick.